Listeners, thanks again for joining us here on the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. As always, we encourage you to send in your recommendations for guests that we should have and any authors whose books you've read recently that have made an impact on your practice. We'd love to chat with them here. Um, so reach out on Twitter or via email, and we'd love to hear those suggestions. I'm Ross Romano, and today I'm really pleased to welcome Jeffrey Benson here to the show. Jeffrey has more than 40 years of experience as a teacher, mentor, and school administrator with a focus on supporting schools that can work for all students. Uh, his other books include Hanging In, Strategies for Working with Students Who Challenge Us Most, and 10 Steps for Managing Change in Schools. But today, we're going to discuss his latest book, which has actually just been named a bestseller by ASCD, uh, Improve Every Lesson Plan with SEL. Jeffrey, congratulations on bestseller status, and welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Good to see you. Hear you, see you, and see you again, Ross. Yeah. So, you know, let's get right into it. And I think a good way, you know, when we talk about social emotional learning and authors and their work around this, um, a great place to start is by just introducing our listeners to where you're coming from, right? Your perspective, your experience, the schools and students you've worked with. So I know that the majority of your career, um, you worked with a high percentage of students who were victims of neglect, abuse, trauma, other adverse childhood experiences, mm -hmm. and students who, you know, in one of the ways you put it, they have to, when, when you get them engaged in their academics, overcome a lot of those risks associated with trying, right? Those risks feel perhaps a little, a little out of reach when you're used to having, you know, these types of adversity. So can you kind of talk a bit about, you know, those school environments who work with the students and, you know, how um, over the course of that time, I, I think a lot of these ideas that you eventually refined and wrote about uh, came about organically through that work? Yeah. So, yeah, as Ross said, um, the majority of my career as a school leader was in schools for kids who just weren't making it in public schools for lots of reasons. Um, and again, for trauma, exploitation, abuse, abuse, neglect. And so one of the things we realized was the day was filled with landmines for them in terms of when they could just shut down. And so we looked at everything we did. What was the entire day like for the kids? So one of our little mantras was, I wanted the school to be better than the streets for my students, and I wanted my classroom to be better than the hallway. So how do you make an environment in which kids want to be in your space so much? So we looked at everything. What's it like to walk into a classroom? What's it like to be introduced? What's it like when you start doing your academics so that you're not having a moment of just sort of flight or fight or freeze? Because you just suddenly was like overwhelmed. One of the things we know about kids who have had difficult lives is that their alarm, like their air raid siren, goes off quicker than other kids. It's louder and it stays on longer. So what we're looking to do initially is how do we reduce those incidents in which they get triggered? But and ultimately, how do they also learn to cope with that? Because ultimately, the world isn't going to be completely without triggers for them. Um, so we looked at everything from how they called us in those schools. We were called by our first names which isn't, I know, a common practice. There were always options. And that's one of the big things in the book as well as it's just good practice to not give kids only one option of what it means to be successful and whether that's in solving a problem outside a classroom or doing academics. Um, so in the book and in the school, we looked a lot at the first task going into class, the do now. I go in, what's the first thing? I don't want to give a kid something that's a one, and I see this a lot in schools. Here's one thing to do. The do now is do this one thing. Well, that's immediately not going to work for some kids. And some kids are going to have the immediate first thing they're going to do is a sense of failure. So I'm a big proponent of the first task has to have many options. 
There's five or six different things you can do. They all will pull you into this room. They will all engage you. They will all make you gain competence or a sense of your competence. Um, there's a saying that you can't have confidence until you have competence. And so you want to start with, okay, what, where are you? What do you know how to do? What do you know how to do? Well, what do you like to do? So I'll say one more thing because it's um, one full chapter in the book about the first thing kids do in class. In all my years of doing do-nows, multiple do-nows, Almost never did a kid choose a task that was just too easy for them because it turns out kids don't like to be bored. They just don't. And it was extraordinary how often they would pick a task. I'd say, wow, that's such a great choice. So I could go around and talk to kids. Wow, why did you choose that one, Ross? What were you thinking about? Wow, that's so cool. Um, and so they're engaged right away with a task that allows them to be successful and it's still part of the curriculum. So I Let's say one one other thing. I know that there are some reasonably good curriculum out there about teaching kids how to ask for help, teaching kids how to get along with each other, conflict resolution. I even wrote one of those years ago. But truly, the major commerce of schools is lesson plans and classes. And we have so many opportunities every hour to prompt and praise and model and support and redirect kids to using SEL skills. And so the book is just do it constantly. It's always there. You don't have to have another curriculum teachers. You already do plenty. Right. And you mentioned the, the confidence and confidence piece. And that reminds me of our um, mutual friend and colleague, Mike Anderson, who mm -hmm. kind of writes about that in his, his book about student motivation. And Mike was uh, on the podcast recently as well. And um, that it's not only about having the competence, but having awareness of your competence, right? Having somebody to reinforce that you're doing well with this. This thing is good. You're improving, you're developing, you have a good skill. Um, having somebody else to reinforce that because of a, a student or or an adult, right, has in their mind the feeling that they, they don't think they're competent, they don't think they're capable. Um, it's really hard to develop that confidence yourself without somebody who is making that an objective to uh, communicate that to you. And um, one of the things that's really evident in reading this book is that you have a very asset-based, asset-minded approach to it. And the perspective that every the classroom can be a place where every student is engaged, where every student wants to be. And then you're looking at it for, okay, so how do we create that, right? Versus versus just looking at it as, well, we assume nobody's going to want to be here. So how do we just kind of try to at least make them stick around? It's saying, okay, well, there's no reason why this isn't an environment where everyone can enjoy being. So now it's, you know, my job as a teacher to figure out what that looks like and how do I make it relevant to my students? Um, and, you know, clearly that uh, that's a mindset that's really critical in, in actually achieving that. Right. So an interesting thing, since I've written the book, more often I'm saying to people, the goal in our work is to go from implicit to explicit. Teachers have always implicitly had an SEL curriculum in mind. They wanted their kids to behave a certain way in addition to the curriculum, in addition to turning in their homework. So how do you just move that from implicit to explicit? So for the listeners, it may be that I, for instance, one of my favorites is I like kids to learn how to advocate for their needs. So all through the school day, there are times to be able to say, okay, class, before we start, let's take 10 seconds of silence. What do you need in order to be successful with this, for this lesson? And a lot of teachers I work with now are starting to put lists up in their class of, these are the ways in class you can ask for things you need. And one of the things we realized coming out of the pandemic was a year ago, so September 2021, 
I thought, wow, we're going back into school. It's going to be like putting on an old sweatshirt or your favorite slippers. We're just going to slip and we know how to do school. And last year was one of the hardest years we'd ever seen because kids came in developmentally in so many different places that we hadn't seen. And what we should have done right from the start is be really explicit. What are our rituals? What are our expectations? And we still need to do that for another year or two. How do we ask for what we need here? How do you go about understanding what's going on? And the truth is we should have always done this. You know, schools have always worked for the kids who are from the dominant culture, where those expectation norms, motivations, et cetera, et cetera, are all kind of implicitly talked about. But how do we make it explicit? You need something? Here's how you get it. Right. What What are those explicit discussions around SEL needs and goals mean to students when, when you are talking about those things independently of the academic side of things. And and I guess illustrating to them as a teacher, these are all things that I'm interested in and care about. And they're, you know, I care about it on its own merit. What, what do you think that means to a student? Well, it's interesting because I had a, first I was gonna say, well, no, actually I don't do it separately, but there's a beginning of the year activity, which is looking at a list of SEL skills and scaffold it to your kids' ages and say, this is what we're going to be working on in class as we're doing our lessons, as we're walking into class, as we're talking about homework, we're going to be looking at these different skills. So sometimes I can say class, like for instance, first prompt, they walk in the room and let's say they're going to be doing group work right away. I say, okay, class, when you sit down in your spot, the first thing I want you to do is check in with your peers. Does everyone know what the task is? Does everyone have what they need? Because in this class, we take care of each other. We make sure everyone who we're sitting near is ready to do the lesson. So I'm just going to give you a half minute with each other. Are you ready? Let me know if you need anything at your table. If you're an individual and your partners at the table can't help you out, that's why they pay me. (laughs) That's why I'm here. Let me know. And then when someone does, I'll say, great. I just, Ross, thank you for asking for what you need. That's how we roll around here. This is a safe place to ask for what you need. So we're prompting it. We're modeling it. We're praising it. We're giving kids language of how to say it which is really important. So then that said, all through the lesson and through the day, I'm looking for what are those opportunities. So in my lesson plan, I might write, all right, we're going into um, direct instruction. Tom, I'm going to give the lesson the new thing that I want students to learn how to do. Before I start class, 10 seconds, think for a moment. I'm going to be talking for about three minutes working on the board. Here are the things that you can do to make sure you're going to be successful. Do you want to move to a different seat, one where you can see the board better? Do you need to move closer? Some of you like to stand up in the back of the room because it's easier for you to listen. If you're standing, bring your notebook. You can stand over there. Um, Some of you might want to get a larger piece of paper. Does somebody want paper with like a graph paper? Does somebody want line paper? Does somebody want a big piece of white paper? So we are always talking about all the things you can do. 10 seconds. Think for a moment. What do you need? All right. Get it. So next 30 seconds, get what you need so I can have you all attentive. So going back to um, this notion that kids come to be able to not only advocate for what they need, but to know this is what I need to do well. And so you're moving to take care of yourself. You're understanding your strengths and weaknesses. You're helping. This is a big part to me of this book and of our work is you're helping to build a classroom community that is interdependent. No, I mean, I, I agree with that entirely, right? That the one of the challenges, and I think one of the things that has been the impediment over the past decade or so, as there's been really high levels of support for the importance of doing SEL in schools, but adoption hasn't 
hasn't risen to that level is okay well where does it fit how do we make it practical you know and if it's seen as a separate extra thing and i think there's that balance to be struck to say one and what this book makes clear it's integrated with the lessons and instruction and academics and certainly that doing a better job with the sel will have positive influence on academic performances and yet also they are individual goals we have for students we care about our students well-being independent of their academic performance. We care about all of it. <laughs> we also want them to perform well academically because that's for, you know, that's to their benefit. And we do believe that doing all these things together helps each element. And yet, um, so it's kind of the way, but I think having those discussions with them explicitly and having them understand that can make a big difference to them as far as the relationship building aspect, as far as them determining their own self-motivation to engage um, and knowing that, you know, the more they understand what their teacher cares about and cares about for them, the more that it allows them to choose, you know, to opt into giving their best. Right. And what's nice, you said the last decade, but I also said probably the last three decades, um, neuroscience has just made it so clear that our brains operate better when we feel safe, when we feel we have agency, when we feel part of a community. Our brains literally operate better. You will get may, way better outcomes from your kids walking in that room if they'll feel like this is my space, this is my room. I'll give you another uh, analogy about that. And Ross and I often have talked about baseball and sports. We know that in almost all sports, home teams have a way better record than away teams. It's just in all sports across the globe, home teams do better. And there's just this sort of understanding when I was young, I used to think, why do they do better? The ball's the same, the rules are the same, the same ref in the other places, same players. And it turns out it matters to walk out onto a field and have thousands of people shouting your name in encouragement. And I think, wow, if those professional athletes are dependent on having people cheer them on, certainly our students are. And a lot of what we do in starting the work when I go and work in schools is I say, how does your classroom feel like the home court advantage for your kids walking in the room? And everyone knows what that is. Oh yeah, you need to do this. You need to do this. Go make it explicit. Yeah. I want to come, can I come back to one other piece? Yep. Mm -hmm. It was about that notion of, and I'm glad you mentioned Mike Anderson. He's a good buddy and an excellent writer and educator about having someone confirm your thinking. So this is one of the problems in traditional classrooms, which I did as well until I started figuring things out, which is I ask a question and three or four kids raise their hand and I, those three or four kids speak. But if I raise a question and say, everyone think for 10, 15 seconds, turn to your partner, tell your partner what you're thinking. And then 10 seconds, each partner turns, tell them there's something so powerful about having another human being hear your idea and nod and confirm or laugh or do whatever, or acknowledge that you thought something. And in a typical classroom, for me to have, let's say 30 kids, all have their idea be said and have someone hear it, it's gonna take a half hour. But if I all say, turn and, turn and learns. So turn and learns are a big part. And I wanna talk about, not only does it reinforce kids thinking and they hear each other's thinking, it's such a deep social emotional skill because you have to listen, you have to articulate your own ideas, and then we could do little exit tickets. And depending again on grade level, we scaffold it. So Jeffrey, what did Ross say? Always a much better thing. Tell me what your partner said, or tell me what was the same and different about what you and your partner said. So we started appreciating similarities and differences. Tell us what you think will help the rest of the class learn. 
from what you said, because I'm always going to pull back to we are a learning community. And how do we collectively learn together? And that is the most profound SEL skill. We know that this is sadly but true, that almost every adult on the street would fail every high school final. Really, truly. So what we're really, I think the 12, 13 years in public schools, at least, what we're really teaching kids is how to contribute and be a member of a community. And I think that is such, we make that from implicit to explicit. We also have a better learning community. And so all those prompts, all those saying, we're doing this in order to help us all learn together. Powerful, powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, and speaking of communities and thinking back to um, your your reference of the, the home field advantage concept is making me think of another uh theory that now I haven't fully worked out because I'm thinking about it in real time. But, you know, there also has been some research to show that subconsciously the the referees or the umpires will tend to give more close calls to the home team, right? Um, and, you know, they don't know they're doing it. They're not doing it on purpose, but there's something about what you want to be a part of something good, right? You, you subconsciously, you want to make the call that makes people happy. So when the home crowd is, is into it and you, you, and then you're, you have that split second to make that ball or strike call or call that penalty or not, you kind of, you just, you're more motivated to make the one that has a positive outcome for the more people that are around you. And there's something to be said about that, right? I don't know what that is in our schools, but maybe that is as we create more of a community around this asset-based approach and this approach of really wanting our students to succeed and really wanting them to have um, well-rounded social emotional outcomes that it influences each of those individuals in those situations to just see things through a little more of a positive lens and see where what is the you know when i have those little micro moments where i can make one decision that pushes things in a positive direction or one that's a little more punitive you know, what's that thing that's kind of pushing me to kind of say, okay, let's go in this direction because I, I now just have more of a positive mindset toward it. Um, and that, I mean, but that's the power of a community, right? And that's the power of um, when that's, when that is what the system encourages, that's what each individual also wants to do. Right. Um, I think part of the notion about the umpires and the refs and all too, is that, and then there are these players who the refs don't like for whatever reasons. Right. And they say, you know, I'm not getting the calls. They're all going against me. And the refs are like, no, I'm just being fair. But there's probably some truth to that because the refs are susceptible just as we are as teachers. And that's why setting kids up to be successful also sets up to have better days. It's way better to praise kids than it is to redirect them. Way better. So you always, you know, catching kids being good, the asset-based part. Set them up for success. Give them a chance to show off doesn't mean you're not going to challenge them. So I want to come back to this other notion, too, that somehow SEL is, is not a challenging kind of, it, it, it sets up an environment in which kids aren't trying the hardest. And I want to say quite the opposite. Just first, I want to say, again, I know from my experience, but we also know from brain science and neurology, what happens when kids feel in a positive environment versus not. Most kids are not motivated by being down. Most kids are not motivated by being shamed. Most kids are not, not motivated by having failed. There are a handful of kids, but mostly success builds on success. And I jokingly say that I, I am a nice guy, but I do all this stuff because I want to kick my kids cognitively. I want every kid to be trying their hardest. And if I don't do this, I'm not getting every kid's best effort. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I would like, I usually delineated it when I would think about it. And again, we think about it in like a, what coaches do in a sports context and the same thing is there's certain people who are motivated to prove you right. And others who are motivated to prove you wrong. And most people fall into the former camp. Most people say, I want you to tell me that you believe in me. You think I can do it. And I'm motivated to show you that you're right about me versus, you know, the, the person who tears you down and wants you to really fight back and say, I'll show you, um, you know, most people are, are motivated by the former. And if what we really want is for each individual student to succeed, we need to really think about that and say, what is actually going to motivate them? Is it, is it going to motivate them if I'm, you know, either, I mean, sometimes it's just, it's a lack of any explicit uh, communication around your beliefs in them, right? It's just whatever is implied by a grade they earned or something like that, or just the lack of saying anything is at least communicating to them, this person doesn't care enough to, to say anything to me, right? Um, versus saying, look, I believe everybody here has the ability to succeed and let me tell them that. Right. I, I think it's a really good thing to say to students every day. I know that everyone in this class can learn this. I, I don't know how fast. Some of you may do some things faster than others. You are all capable of learning. It's going back to also that sense of being spoken to. I have like one, one rule, I think, only in all my work. Oh, don't hit kids. That's all. But the other is every kid, every class, be said hello to in some fashion. Be acknowledged for being in the room. It's really, really important. Um, and I want to go back to even that, um, maybe not quite so much from the sports thing, but about that notion of what it feels like to be recognized and how it motivates people. And this goes for you all who may be kindergarten teachers or elementary school principals all the way through high school. As we say in, the, in, the, in this business, when kids drop out, it's not an event, but it's a process. And the process is years of alienation, years of not being noticed, years of not being affirmed of what you're good at, years of not being shown that you contribute to the community. And you do that long enough, kids drop out. So that's the worst event. The other event that happens is we have tons of kids who are just passive and sit and just wait to be told what to do. They and we want we need we need them to be more excited. We need them to be generating the ideas, generating the questions. One of my favorite books when I was learning to be a teacher, and uh, I quoted in the SEL book, is "The Having of Wonderful Ideas" by Eleanor Duckworth, and it's one of her essays too. The title alone. Is, is like, has always inspired me. I want my kids to have wonderful ideas. And they will know they're wonderful in part by me affirming them, saying, whoa, Ross, that's so cool. I never thought of that before. Um, so asking kids what they're thinking. I'll, I'll say one more on this one. 90% of questions we ask kids are guess what the teacher's thinking questions. 90%. But if I say to you kids, tell me what you are thinking now. 10 seconds of silence, everyone. What's going through your head now? Turn and talk to your partner. And then I'll hear some samples or I'll walk around the room and listen to all the wonderful ideas you're having because you all have beautiful brains. They hear that over and over. That's what I mean. We, I'm doing this in the midst of teaching algebra. I'm doing this in the midst of teaching the periodic table of elements. I'm doing this in the midst of teaching the causes of the Civil War or how to mix the color red and color blue. To, uh, you know, all of that stuff. I'm doing it all the time. Yeah. And so, um, in, in, you know, so you referenced, right, that process and the alienation. There's perhaps no better illustration of that than, you know, what you wrote about is uh, the reason why you were able to kind of 
explore a lot of these ideas and innovate is that when you were teaching, you had a, a group of students that were labeled as the challenging students. So you were in the classroom, in the basement, down the hall, out of sight, out of mind, and you know, just do what you can to have your students not bother the others. And uh, you know, and through that process, you had a lot of freedom to try new things because nobody was really paying that much attention. And um, it was, you know, maybe good for you, good for your students at the end of the day because it was you, because that's what you did. However, not a great uh, you know, illustration of of how schools uh should work, you know, but I, I think also, you know, kind of as, as you went further and you think at first you really were working on diving into those lesson plans and having those be really the core of what was happening and then um in, in a way of speaking the devil went down to the basement and uh you know and and I, are you willing to bet that your lesson plan will work and work for every student right is that question that you kind of asked yourself and that you you ask um the readers of this book to really reflect on are you if you had to make that bet are you willing to do it? And uh, you said the first time you confronted it, you said, well, why am I, why am I so hesitant to do this? To bet on um, myself. <laughs> right. And so uh, talk about that a little bit. What, why, why is this? I mean, obviously I, I think you know, most people can surmise why this is an important question, but to the level of saying like, are you willing to put your signature on that and say, yes, this is going to work for each of these kids. And if I'm unwilling to say that, then I need to, you know, go back to the drawing board. Well, there's a lot of answers to that. Um, I'll give a few. One is my class never went so well when there were some kids who were alienated and they'd act out more. I mean, partly it was, <clears throat> I wanted to make sure that they had traction in the lesson, that they they weren't just so discouraged or, or unable to get started that they it was more fun to goof off. So that was one part. So that's sort of a very practical one. One is that, it's an equity thing. Like, which whose kid gets the lesson plan? Whose kid is this lesson plan written for? And why that kid? And why not other kids? Now, the, the difficult part, and I have, you know, all of us work hard on this when we want to have a differentiated lesson. It is true at the beginning, if you want lessons that each kid can be successful in, it takes a little longer to do your lesson plan. Ultimately, you get good at it. I want to say you get really good at it, and then you you know, you're thrilled to go into do the lesson because you want to see every kid like light up trying to do the lesson. But initially it takes a little more time because I don't know why one kid gets left out of the plan. What happened? Why is that? And then the last one is that, and sort of a moral issue for me about schools, schools have an opportunity to either replicate the inequity in the society or undermine it. And if what we do is we come in with lesson plans that almost by definition, are going to be overwhelming for some kids and aren't going to work for some kids. All we're doing is reinforcing the inequity. Lesson plans are really magical things. That's why it's one of the quotes in the book. I think they're magical. They kind of affirm that every person can learn and every person can be fascinated by the world, can have their own wonderful ideas. And that's it's a high standard, but I think it's the one we're supposed to go for. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so you know, I, I think a lot of what we've talked about so far, of course, is is very much setting the stage for what's about what this approach is. Um, but I also do think that uh, it's important to to note that it's a very practical book. Uh, it's you know, it's laid out with a series of steps to uh, bring this SEL into every lesson plan, as the as the title suggests. Can I speak a little to that, just briefly, to be even more explicit? 
what we did in setting up the structure of the book was took us, we take the reader through a chronology of a typical class lesson. So typically a class lesson has kids walking in. So what's the first thing that happens when kids walk in to let right. them know that there's a particular special place. Then what's the do now or the initial first thing like the I'm accessing prior learning. So almost all teachers do a little, who can tell me what we did yesterday, some version of that. Then we have usually a section on direct instruction. So there's a chapter on direct instruction. How do you harness the kids SEL skills so they're actually wanting to have direct instruction? So they have you know skin in the game during that. And then there's a period of time when you have class kids doing explorations, trying things out. You've given them a lesson. Now they're doing worksheets. They're working with blocks. They're you know, experimenting. What happens during that time? Then we have a formative assessment chapter. So when you're going around assessing kids, which is my one of my favorite chapters in the book, because it's what I love to do is sit and talk to kids about what they're learning. So how do you do that? And then there's also a very formal, how do you close class, which right. is so important at the beginning of my career. I spent a lot of time thinking about the opening of class because I wanted kids to come in my room. Now I think the close of class may, is equally important. How kids leave class not only reinforces a lesson. One of my the teachers I work with said, Jeffrey, it's I would have titled that chapter Securing the Lesson. What are all the cognitive and emotional things you can do with three minutes at the end of the class to have kids say, ah, right, that's what we did. This is how I contributed to doing this. This is how I thought about my own efforts in class. This is what we're going to be ready to do when we come into class tomorrow. So the book goes through very specifically, and in each of those chapters, a lot of, you can do this, you can do this. This is what it looks like K to two. This is what it looks like three to six grade levels. This is what it looks like middle school and high school. So it's broken down so you could scaffold to kids at different ages. Yeah, yeah, and we, and we can even skip ahead, and then we'll we'll work our way back again. But that intentional closure routine that you just referenced really stands out, and I think it relates to what we were talking about earlier. It's those opportunities to affirm and confirm what you've learned and what you now know, and what you're going to be able to use tomorrow. Right? That that having it be very intentional and in saying as we're you know closing the book on this particular lesson before we rush into the next one. Let's have everybody have a moment to kind of reflect on, okay, what do I know now that I didn't know yesterday and that I will still know tomorrow? What skills do I have? How did I perform? What, you know, what, where did I succeed? Um, which, you know, as I was reading about that to me is like, okay, if, if there's a number one thing that that routine can accomplish, it's just that because in our lives, we just, everything will move so quickly and it's always the next thing and the next thing, the, this quiz and the next test and the next assignment and the next project. Um, and just to even have that moment intentionally to say, Let's let's close this uh, in a, so that we know what we did. Well, let's secure the lesson, as my friend says. So here's an interesting thing. And now, again, going back to the brain science, which is so great, that we know human brains have a capacity to remember beginnings and endings. We get really fuzzy in the middle. So having periodic time stopping during the day, during a lesson, to say, okay, let's stop right now. What have we just done? What are we thinking about? What did you try? We can share it out as a class. You can turn to your partner. What do we want to remember from the last 10 or 15 minutes of class before we go on? Now, I can say, if I ask, who can tell me the most important thing we did? Five out of the 25 kids are going to raise their hand. And everyone else is just going to kind of go and wait around. But if I say, you think, and now turn to your partners or at your table, everyone share, what do you think was an important thing that happened during the last 10 or 15 minutes? For me, it's really important that listeners understand that you can't separate cognition and emotions. The parts of our brains that 
create long-term storage, go through the parts of our brains and make sure that we are emotionally safe and feeling part of a community. You cannot separate them out. So we should leverage them. Let's make sure kids are talking to each other about lessons and talking to each other about their wonderful ideas. Your kids will remember more. And isn't that the point? Yeah. Um, so your process, does, it starts off with that goal setting and goal setting with students, right? Which is uh, of critical importance to that, <laughs> that it's uh, it's collaborative co-creation. Um, and and you, you, know, you referenced how it's set up around the different age groups um for this part particularly as as you're dialoguing with students you're co-creating their goals you're what what does that look like you know for example between a couple of different age groups um because i imagine you know they're going to engage with it a little differently as a default right so sometimes it's to talk about last year's teacher or last year's class you know and this again scaffolded for different ages but what last year did you like about school what made you feel good so that's the little kids when were you happy in school it was lunch recess or all that and you know what even if kids say that i'm going to say and what was good about that because that's actually some from a kid's a real honest answer i got to move my body i got to try different things out i wasn't sitting in my seat it wasn't just one thing to do but as you can see that question as you go older for some kids it's like last year what do you remember most about learning from last year? So I'm talking like mid-elementary school kids. What were your favorite lessons? What was your favorite unit from last year? And I get to middle and high school kids, it's what do you know about yourself as a learner? When you think about the ideal teacher for you in the ideal classroom, what's going on? I want to say all of these, we have to scaffold by giving examples. Because I know this from my years of work and I, my long, crazy career working with kids from preschool through, you know, adult ed, so not kids at that point, which is I sometimes have to say things like, let me see, do you like to write with pen and paper versus the keyboard? Um, do you like to sit close to the teacher or far away? Do you like to take your time before you answer? Or do you like to answer quickly? Lots of things like that. Does it help you to work with somebody or is that difficult for you? So there's a part in the book about my nephew who is a wonderful teammate in sports, but likes to work on his own in class. But he knows himself as a learner so well. So we have to give kids those questions and also allow them to experiment. There's a, there's a story in the book. I think kids should have a choice, a controlled choice about who they sit with in class. So the language I learned from a peer was, is that a safe, is that a smart seat or a social seat? Jeff, Jeffrey, you want to sit next to Ross? I happen to think that's a social seat. And so giving kids that language, who's, who would be good to sit next to if you really want to do well in your lessons? Who would be good to sit next to if you also want to feel safe and comfortable? And then I collect all of those and I put together a seating chart because that's the one control over that. Still, I'm ultimately in charge of the classroom, but one in which it's informed by the kids' thoughts about how they are as learners, how they are as kids. And then I can come back to them and say, Jeffrey and Ross, you guys shouldn't sit together. <laughs> that's a complete social seat. Let's, let's find a better seat for each of you. I still love your friends, but you know we got other business to do in here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, nobody should have sat near me. It was <laughs> many, many, many students were lost along the way. Uh, so if you, um, you know, one, one of the things I was thinking about as I was you know, thinking about even this perceptive setting the goals, discussing this with students, another important, uh, I think, audience here is families and parents and their awareness of what schools are doing with SEL. And, and uh, I think some of the 
friction around the terminology, not the goals, not the not what we want to see for our students, but what these words mean. And it made me think, you know, to put you on the spot, if you were to develop a new definition of, of SEL and say, if they said these were these letters no longer stand for anything, it's not an acronym, it's it is whatever Jeffrey says it is. How would how would you define it? for those key audiences so that they clearly understand what it's about and, and don't read into it something else that they may you know misapprehend? That's a good question because actually I had talked to the editors of uh, ASCD, the publishing company, whether we should have SEL in the title, whether it already got corrupted enough. But it turns out that's not true, by the way. The book's selling really well. Right. So obviously it's not turning people off. So I want to go back to that as parents, and I'm a parent, I always wanted my teachers to create a safe place for my kids to learn. Right. I want my kids to feel like they can ask questions. I want my kids to feel like if they make an error, that they don't move, they won't be shamed in class. I want them to be in a place that they try really hard. That, that's the implicit part. We've always implicitly wanted our teachers to teach our kids something, sometimes just about being polite. You know, sometimes SEL skills are thought of like, say, please say thank you, which I actually think is more important than a lot of the curriculum in school that kids leave saying please and thank you. We've always done it. So I would say to, the to parents, which ones are important to you in bringing up your kid? Do you want your kid to help other kids learn? Or do you want your kid to just sit by themselves and just do their own work? Do you want your kids to help do classroom jobs or not do classroom jobs? Do you want your kid to take a risk asking a question that's a theory? Or do you want them to just ask, answer questions that are like Jeopardy? Right. Because we've always done this. Yeah, that's why it's not about SEL. Um, one of my alternate titles for the book was um, going to be Safe and Brave Classrooms. Classrooms in which it's safe to be in, and then you can be brave and try stuff. And I, I like, you know, in a lot of the workshops I'm doing now, we start off with, with the adults. How do we make a safe and brave place for us as adults to learn? What's that look like in a classroom for kids to feel safe and brave? Um, so that's my answer to that. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And, well, and along those lines, right, um, a classroom with those objectives around it and, and where kids do feel safe to give all of themselves, engage fully, try, take a risk, gets to that next piece of gaining students' interest and motivation in the classroom. And, you know, you write about that very intentionally being the goal. Okay, once these kids come to my classroom, how am I getting their interest? How am I getting them motivated? Um, but that's, you know, built into the lesson plans as you propose it. Uh, how, how do you go about that? Because again, I think this goes back to all of it, right? It's the thing, um, you know, a couple of things you wrote about is all information can be interesting, right? And life is not a struggle against boredom and compliance. It's a wonder to be apprehended. So if you have that mentality and you're saying, okay, my job here is to start out by making sure that they're feeling good about this, they're motivated to do their best, and then, you know, the next steps will follow. How are you doing that? Well, great. So there are a couple of good parts. There's a teacher part and the kid part, and they overlap. So one of the things is I actually want to know as a teacher, why do I want to teach this lesson? Why am I excited to do it? Because if I don't bring some sense of excitement and passion to every lesson, yeah, you know, then it just becomes a drag. It's perfunctory going through the motions. So even though you don't have to give a speech every day, why do I want to teach this? Actually, 
sometimes we should say, this is what's in it for me. This is what I love about this lesson. I want to see if you all love it this much too. I want you to try these things. Let me know if you like this lesson as much as I do. So that's one piece. Then the other point, then there's a long list in the book. And what are the hooks for kids? Why should they do this lesson? Because as I said, once you get to high school, it's sort of optional. All the content and skills are sort of optional. Um, and I was a high school teacher too. And I always wanted my kids to, you know, love my lessons and want to do them. It's more than just because you'll need this on the test. And that's the challenge. And there's a lot of answers other than you'll need this on the test. And I want to come back to, I'm going to go back around to the community. Um, one of my mentors, Jim Grant, worked in indigenous communities, uh, Native American schools, and he, and which have the demographically probably the lowest rate of high school graduation and college acceptance and finishing college of probably any group in the country almost. And if he said to his high school students, you're going to need this for your SATs, you're going to need this when you go to college, as much as we he aspired for that, it just went over their heads. They didn't even hear it. But if he said, by the way, this will help your tribe and community, they'd look up. And so there's a sense of how will this help you in your life? How will this help you be better in your family? Well, if everyone in your family knew this, would your family be better off? If everyone in your community knew how to do what we're going to do today, how would we be better off? How will you be able to help people know this stuff? For some kids, you know, the motivation is I want high grades. I'm okay. If that gets you through. But for some of you, you know, I can say, Ross, what I'm thinking about this lesson for you is, I think you're going to learn to be a better learner doing this lesson. There are some challenges in this. It's like a good opponent if you're playing chess, if I think you're a chess player. Mm-hmm. I want you to struggle with this one because I think the struggle is going to make your brain grow because we know brains grow. This is part, you also teach kids things about brain science. Human brains grow less by repeating what you already know than by solving problems and correcting errors. Your brain grows tremendously by doing that. So I say to kids a lot, your brains are going to get way bigger by trying this out. But, and here's the parts I think are going to be really cool and interesting and challenging. So you have to bring that level of, there's something with us here. Uh, but one more quick one. I used to have a um, thing with the teachers in my school, and I have to say I couldn't ever mandate this because it was more a aspirational hope that when they were like looking um, at the textbook, that the teachers who could not say if I could control the world, this is what they want you to do. I would say, no, this is what you want them to do. Who are the they? Are they some people sitting in some basement somewhere who wrote this textbook? Because as a kid, I wanted my teacher to say, this is, I want you to do this. Not they. I want you to tell me you want me to do this. And I think we can convey that. You know, it's one of the reasons I love lesson plan writing. Why I never would want to be the director of a school that gave teachers lesson plans like an assembly line and just do this. I want them to love and be fascinated by how's Jeffrey going to do in this lesson? I wonder if Ross is going to be hooked. You know, I want them to have that passion. And we we can bring that to ask them to try stuff. Yeah, so much of as I, you know, read through any any books and materials around teaching, it always strikes me how it's like old challenges, old, old problems, new ideas. But then the new ideas are really old ideas, right? Where it's a, it's just good teaching around these things that describe relevance to students. So when we think about even something like cultural relevance, well, what is it? It's making it relevant to a student so they can relate. And, and there are examples, right, of like where they were finding, okay, where are their biases in standardized assessments? So it could be something as simple as a math problem that says, you know, 
Jenny has three horses and her uh, parents uh, take her to see uh, two more horses, how many horses. Are. And for a student who's never seen a horse, it's just, you know, it's, it's unnecessarily confusing. Um, and it's not, you know, it, it can be biased without being malicious if you're not thinking about who is reading this and what do they know and what are their reference points and are we distracting them from what they need what they need to focus on which is the math by throwing other things in there that to a certain person may as well be you know fictional terms from game of thrones or something right right and actually there's a interesting because like when i do i didn't watch game of thrones and crossword puzzles are filled with that now and i'm like oh i'm outside and if we think of the analogy analogy with kids we all come as adults with metaphors and references that do or don't work for, for a lot of kids. Here's one of my favorite homework assignments. And again, it's a part, it's in the book somewhere, is I like kids to go home and ask their parents if they remember learning this stuff. Ask their parents how they use this stuff. Go around and talk to other adults about do they ever find this stuff useful in their lives. And you can do this with kids from really young because there's so much wisdom in their families, in their communities, and also a way to get relevance. And I don't mind if kids come and say, yeah, my uncle said that he's never used it in his life. All right. How, like, what does that mean? Let's think through this. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great. Um, and another piece that was, I think is kind of built into this interest and motivation and, you know, it, right. A, 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 an objective that we have for students a lot of times is um, autonomy. I mean, we believe that most people function best when they feel a degree of autonomy over what they're doing. Um, but I made, you know, I made this term up. This term doesn't appear in the book, but I kind of um, saw that you were talking about making decisions around what I would call differentiated autonomy, right? Understanding what level of autonomy each student is ready for at a given time and how the classroom functions as a result. Um, I think in a sense, you, you know, sort of even referenced this when talking about the seating charts, right? There's certain students who we know this kid's basically ready to say where they should sit and who they should sit with. And we know that that'll work for them. This other one, it needs to be a little more collaborative because they, you know, maybe need to consider some more factors. How does, I mean, how do you even make decisions around that and, and think about that when you know that, okay, our goal is to get everybody to a certain level of autonomy as another, right. As another SEL goal. However, there's some differentiation required because not everybody is at the same point at the same time. Right. Well, I think you did just sort of answer it. In some ways, we keep we have to make explicit in our own head what's our rubric at this moment for what are kids, what levels of um, skill do they need to show so I can give them this level of autonomy and to you know and in any of those things. Okay, so what to make that explicit is really important. I want to come back to something else you said. Hold on a second. Um, I, I use a word a lot in in um, my teaching and learning and writing, which is this notion of interdependence. I don't think human beings are actually meant to be completely independent. I think we really have to lean into this notion that we are interdependent. We're learning that so much about the planet anyhow, so much about the politics of the world anyhow, that how do we work with each other is a really important piece. And yes, I wanna keep coming back to, cause the kids will do better with the curriculum, but they will also learn their place in community. What are the strengths they bring? What are they ready to do? What didn't work well? I think letting kids try and fail is okay. That's another part. Uh, not fail where they're going to blow up, you know, the building, but okay. So it didn't work sitting with that person. It didn't work going over to this. This one didn't work. Let's think through it again. What can we do different next time? 
Do you think an, an emphasis when when SEL components are emphasized within the curriculum, it lends itself to a more effective formative assessment because there is just more attention paid to those qualitative factors? Oh, I'm glad you brought formative assessment. I, I think I might've mentioned in the book, but in any case for me, I love formative assessment. I think it's what all teachers initially wanted in their head. Their vision of teaching was to sit with a kid or kids and have them go, oh, I'm thinking this. And you go, oh, and have them light up and have them have those aha moments, which are so wonderful. So I always think formative assessment is where I know whether I've made a safe and brave classroom for kids. Or when I'm walking over, are they excited that Mr. Benson's walking over? Or are they fearful that they're going to be shamed and pointed out what they haven't done well? So all of the stuff we've done of kids being able to say, this is what I'm trying. This is what I'm thinking about. This is my idea. Where have I, hey, show me, there's a whole list of questions in the book. Show me where you started. Would you start there again? I'm going to yeah. speak to your buddy over here. Should I say that you had a good starting spot? Would you recommend that starting spot? What do you feel like really confident in looking at your work now? What are you sure about? And what are you like still struggling with here a little bit? Did you correct any errors? Because correcting errors, we know, makes you smarter. Did you correct any errors? Or do you make a decision not to go in one path versus another? Are amazing questions to ask. Again, back to Eleanor Duckworth, she has a great quote that by asking, by us trying to understand kids by asking them those questions, the kids understand themselves better. We're giving them a mental construct to understand themselves as learners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always say to my students, I can't wait. While you're working, I'm waiting out into the classroom now. You know I'm coming just to be totally curious. I'm not grading. I'm not saying to the kids, oh, right, wrong. It's like, tell me more. Tell me more what you're thinking about. How do you get here? What else what could we do now? What if, Ross, what if instead of you doubled that number, what if you tripled it? What do you think is mm -hmm. going to happen? I'll come back in a couple of minutes. Let me know what your experiments found out. Yeah. And, and, and relatedly, I mean, a related topic that comes up uh, pretty frequently here is the feedback that administrators should be engaging in with their teachers and you know, mm -hmm. assuming administrator has a goal of improving uh, this instruction around SEL in the school. What in, in that case, what is feedback that makes teachers better? Right. We all, you know, we always have to understand that teachers are learning too. So the question is, so what are you learning from the class this year? You know, what, what are you coming to understand about this class, this curriculum this year? Because the truth is you've never taught this curriculum to this group of kids in 2022. So what's working, what's not working? What are you experimenting with? One of the things I think we need to do a lot more in schools, uh, it's just in a new article I'm writing, is this notion of permission to experiment. One of the best things, this goes way back to uh, my early years in special ed, not only in my classroom in the basement, but when I was director of schools that filled with those kids, was one of my mentors said to me, Jeffrey, you don't run an, you don't run an experimental school, you run an experimenting school. I thought I was like, yeah, thank you for noticing. We try stuff. We say, oh, that didn't work. You know, teachers are incredible. I'm going to say, oh, most teachers, the vast majority of teachers are really thoughtful and creative. And we put handcuffs on them. And I think they need to be liberated to try stuff, try stuff, try stuff. Experiment. Report out on your experiments. They don't have to, all have to work. But what are you learning about teaching and learning? I used to start faculty meetings at my school with a turn and learn. We had dozens of questions. And one of my favorites was, turn to your partner. What are you learning about teaching and learning from one of your classes now? 
But what are you making sense of? And honor that that professional reflection that makes us good teachers and even good principals. Right. Well, there's a there's a song that my son's been enjoying lately, Permission to Dance uh, by BTS. And the lyric is, we don't need permission to dance. So the point, you know, being as administrators, can we create an environment where our teachers don't need permission to experiment and to try new things? Because that's just the way it goes, right? That's what they do. And in fact, if we don't give them explicit permission, this is the sad part. They do it, but they go it goes underground. They can't report out about it. They have to try it on the sly as opposed to, yay, you. What a great idea to try that out. You know, obviously I'm going to talk to somebody who's making ridiculous, you know, if they're making outlandish, but most teachers won't. So this is a, there's a parallel between teachers and kids. Um, I mentioned earlier about letting kids stand around the room, like having standing room where kids can move. And I know most teachers, when I do this at workshops, I can look at their eyes and I'm saying, oh, you're thinking of five kids who are going to mess that up. So we don't, we should not stop 20 kids from doing something in their zone of proximal development because five kids are going to struggle. We're going to protect those five kids from messing things up and let the other 20 be the heroes of the class. Let them model how to do this. Let them make the culture of the class. We don't say, oh, I'm looking at this class. Five of you are going to struggle with algebra. All right, no one's learning algebra. Similarly, we have to do that with teachers. A teacher recently said to me, one of the problems with all of the rubrics and all of the um, standardization in schools is we treat every teacher like the worst teacher. And it's like, let's stop doing that. We have probably out of 100 teachers in a school, five or six who are really problematic. And we have a whole bunch who aren't. And we tend to not let all of them do their great stuff because of those five or six who are problematic. We have to let the other people be the heroes of the school. And that goes back to classrooms. It goes back to all our work. Yeah. Is there... Um a source of, or sources of resistance to sustaining this? I and mean, is it, you know, do the teachers either feel like sometimes, well, it's not working, or I don't know if it's working, or um, or it's it's a lot of effort, you know, or, or just at a certain point, well, haven't we done it enough? <laughs> it's, shouldn't it, we've already been doing it for a while. Won't the kids get it by now? Is that, I mean, when you think about, okay, we need to do it and do it. When you say every lesson plan, right? We're talking about a long-term daily practice. Um, you know, where what impedes it becoming um, sustained over time. Well, it's interesting. It maybe harkens back to what we were just talking about. One of the impediments to sustaining this work or even to starting it is a little too much top-down direction. This is a time where teachers need their space to experiment, to try what works for them. So oftentimes it's just saying to teachers, you already have an implicit SEL goal in your class, whether it's kids to advocate for themselves or to make a classroom where kids help each other out. So where in your lesson can kids advocate for themselves? Or where in your lesson, can kids help each other out? And put a couple of marks in your lesson plans to say, oh, I'm going to remember to say here, class, this is a time now to look at your list and advocate for what you need. Or class, this is a time now we're going to do our thing, which is helping each other out. Just get making that explicit. And then in a lot of my work, either from people having read the book or workshops I'm doing or coaching I'm doing, I say to teachers, pick one or two more that fit your space, that fit your need, your group, what you're learning about your cohort of students and find more places to put that in just like you're putting the other ones in. So when folks have that option, like we with kids do now, pick what is going to work for you. What's your growing edge? What fills your need? That's not an impediment. That's great that they're going to see the benefits of that. There's some 
activities that have much more bang for the buck and others that are kind of smaller, but you start with what is working. And over time, and this goes back to school change processes, over time, are there any things that you do want to make uniform across a grade or across a middle school team or across a school? But you don't start there. You start with let the group find what it needs to reinforce for the students in terms of their skills. We've always done it implicitly. That's the deal. Teachers have always implicitly had SEL skills they want their kids to demonstrate in the class. Start there. Yeah, I love that answer. And it's a tremendous segue into the last thing I wanted to um, point out and ask you about and uh, a topic that um, that I've certainly brought up a lot of times in the podcast here and looked at a lot of things through this lens is um, teachers, morale in the profession, retention of teachers and and the various factors around, you know, looking at what is good for our educators. And uh, there's a couple short passages that you wrote here that directly really address teachers. And I wanted to read them and then I'll, I'll ask you about them. But uh, first, I'll kind of read through. First is, if you are new to the profession, I want to support your idealism and give you tools to hold that idealism with theory and determination. My stories are not just illustrations of strategies in action, but affirmations that we really can have great relationships with students, be innovative, and do the job well. Uh, and then you also write to the veteran teachers. For veteran teachers, I want to provide a touchstone to counter the cynicism that can grow like mold in schools that have always lacked the resources we've truly needed. I want to counter the public skepticism of our efforts and the politicians who seem to know nothing about our work. And then it goes on to say, your best moments of teaching have always been informed by the social and emotional learning of your students. So you want to reconnect them with that. So, you know, I think it's so, I mean, important. And one, me reading that can give our listeners who have not read Jeffrey's books before um, some insight into what a great writer he is. Um, but also, you know, I think that the direct um, thought put into how these strategies are things that allow teachers to stay attuned to the mission and the reasons of why they got into this. And it, it is about those relationships with students and those ideals and those goals and the feeling that we can make a difference. And the longer that one is in the profession, yeah, there is this public discourse that really is draining. Um, and yet there is, you know, so much potential within our schools to uh, feel like the cup is being refilled. So um, why, you know, why did you, why do you find it so important to really, I mean, why did you find it important to write this? Wow, it's a really good question. There's an old line that I think schools too often take great teachers and make them good and take good teachers and make them mediocre and take teachers who are just going to barely make it and just make them burn out. Mm -hmm. um, intersection of infinite need and finite resources for so long, we don't even know what it would look like if we actually were fully resourced and structured to leave no child behind. I love that notion. But what would it look like? What would schools look like? So there's a way that teachers in their own space, even if outside of your classroom door, it's hard, in your own space, that autonomy, that sense of, okay, in my space, I can make a safe and brave classroom. <clears throat> I can help make kids feel seen and heard and feel competent and confident in my space. My preference is that school leaders work with their staff and say, 
given the environment we're in, what can we do? What structures can we put in place? How do we support each other to do this? Given the limitations, we can still max out all of this good stuff. But in our school, I think school reform is a school building by school building effort, Ross. I think every school has its own cohort, its own demographics, its own resources, its own architecture. And it's sitting down with the folks in that building and say, how do we in this building max this out? On what resources we have in the community? We have the tools, we have to have some time together to say, let's make this a, a priority for ourselves. Right. Yeah. So um, thank you, Jeffrey, for, for sharing and, and for your time on the show here. What uh, what are you working on now? Where can listeners find you if they're interested in more of your work? So uh, my website is jeffreybenson.org, and it's linked to all my articles and books and resources I'm doing. Um, oh, I, I'm, I'm doing such interesting things these days, Ross. I'm really excited. I coach some individual principals and teams of principals in the school district, working with some schools are in from the book, incorporating right. SEL, doing some work in schools around their moving discipline from punishment to teaching. So seeing discipline as an opportunity to teach. So this infused with some SEL and equity issues there. Just wrote an article, which I'm hoping is gonna get published soon, which is, it goes back to that notion of, if I'm a school leader, how do I make things be uniform so there's coherence in my school mm -hmm. and where to let go and trust teachers to make the in the weeds decisions and to support them in that. And we need, uh, and I'm hoping I'm providing people with a language and a framework to have that conversation. Where is a principal? Can I say that's enough top down? Now I have to let the teachers have resources to succeed or where do I need to even push farther for uniformity at what risks? Um, that's what I've been working on now. It's the next piece. Well, listeners, um, we're going to put information in the show notes about Jeffrey's book, Improve Every Lesson Plan with SEL. We'll link to his website as well so that you can find his other resources and find the book. Please do subscribe to the Authority Podcast for more in-depth author interviews or visit bpodcast.network to learn about all of our other shows. Thanks again, Jeffrey. Okay, one more quick thing. Through my website, you can write to me. I love being in correspondence with, edu with educators anywhere. Got questions, got ideas? send them to me. Happy to be in touch. Excellent. Thank you.